0: Hey, good morning, everyone. So happy that you're here with us. My name's Tom, if I've not met you, I am here in my house in Allison, Ontario. You may have heard of it. It uh, hosts the annual Potato Fest. So, yeah, that's where I live. But today we're we're so happy to be starting off our series in Ephesians that we've called All Things New. And today we're gonna be looking at the first two verses that you just heard read. And even within those first two verses, you're going to find out there's lots to to think through and process and to unpack. And so that's kind of a little mini taste of the whole uh, series, because we're actually going to be taking 18 weeks, 18 weeks to go through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And today, my hope is just to intro it kind of at like a huge airplane level, kind of looking down at at the big storyline and plot of this of this letter and then also to lay out a few goals for us as a community as we learn through this letter together and so with that being said would you guys grab your bibles turn them on if they're on your phone um, anyone get the scripture journal pretty cool i saw a few of you guys did so if you want to grab those things we're just going to head right into the first verse and i'm going to go kind of line by line and then at the end hopefully share a summary of the whole book and then again those those goals as we journey through the letter together So the letter starts off with an introduction, let's read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And anytime you see that word Christ, you could also insert the word king. So Paul, an apostle of King Jesus by the will of God. This is an interesting way to start a letter. You know, we we normally end letters with who wrote the letter, but Paul, as was the custom of his day, is beginning the letter with an introduction this is who I am, this is who's writing to you, which when you think about it is actually kind of clever. Like I often, if I, I mean, I don't really receive letters as much as I used to, but you know, when you received a letter in the past in the, in the olden days, you'd flip it over and often look who wrote the letter first. And so he's skipping that step. He's like, hey, this is who I am. This is who's writing to you. He's making it really plain. So this raises the question, who is this Paul character? And maybe you have some more questions, but maybe this is one of them is, is this the only letter that Paul wrote. Is this the only letter found in the the New Testament? Paul is actually the writer of 13 New Testament epistles. Paul was a missionary responsible for the spread of the good news of Jesus to the non-Jewish world through the early church in the first century. And by many, he is considered to be two of the greatest, one one of the two greatest men to ever live. The second would of course be Jesus Christ. And I would submit the third would be LeBron James. And so they would kind of fill out the podium there. But that's not how his story started. Maybe you know this, but maybe you don't. Let's, let's, let's go all the way back to the beginning to kind of unpack who, who Paul is. So Paul was born in modern-day Turkey to Jewish parents. And although he was born there, he was actually brought up in Jerusalem. And Paul was a Pharisee, which is uh, the strictest and most, most orthodox and conservative um, sect of, of Judaism at the time. And he actually learned under one of the greatest teachers of the Pharisees called Gamaliel, 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 Gamaliel one of the premier Pharisee teachers of his time. And so, again, that, that Pharisee group was super strict, law abiding, orthodox and conservative. And so that group of of Jewish people, the Pharisees, they they um, didn't really so much care for the Jesus movement. You could say they hated the Jesus movement, and so Paul, as a Pharisee, someone who had learned under Gamaliel, was convinced that Jesus was this failed Messiah that because he was actually hung on the cross, he was cursed by God. so someone hung on a cross, how can that be you know the one who is promised in the prophets and who was spoken of all the way back in Genesis? There's no way this is that Messiah who's come to kind of restore all things. there's no way that's who who Jesus is. And so Paul took it upon himself as his duty to stamp out any spark of Jesus's followers or any following of Jesus. He wanted to run around and stamp that out as quickly as possible. He was convinced that he ought to do anything and everything to oppose the name and purposes of Jesus. So Paul is actually this person who's really driven and successful, as we're going to learn as, you know, in, on the other end of the spectrum. But even in this mission of stamping out the Jesus movement, Paul was incredibly successful. He succeeded in this by imprisoning, voting for the death of, punishing, and even forcing blasphemy from the early followers of Jesus. In short, you could say he was Antichrist. The story goes on though. So if you guys do have your Bibles, I would encourage you to, to flip back to Acts chapter 26, and let's just read Paul actually telling his own story to King Agrippa. This is where Paul kind of, his story takes a turn. I'll give you guys a few seconds, and then we'll read this together. Let's read God's word. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, "Who are you, Lord?" And the Lord said, "I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom sorry, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes." So that, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Incredible story. So as Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul had a revelation and realization that Jesus really was the Messiah. He was the Messiah sent by Yahweh to fulfill fulfill God's purpose of saving humanity from the power of sin, Satan, and death. Paul had been wrong. He was dead wrong. So Paul, the antagonist of King Jesus by the will of the chief priests, becomes Paul, an apostle or a sent one of King Jesus by the will of God. This is a tangible picture of God's grace. I want you guys to remember that word. This is a tangible picture of God's grace disrupting the life of Paul. This theme of grace is going to be the flavor of this entire letter, this disruptive grace. So this is a brief introduction to Paul, a sent one of King Jesus by the will of God. So that's the introduction. That's who's, who, That's the introduction to the author, Paul. But who's he writing to? So let's read the second line together to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in King Jesus. If you're reading the ESV, like if you're following along in your Bible, does it have a footnote there? Mine has a footnote right after the word faithful. And mine says in the footnote, some manuscripts, saints who are also faithful, omitting in Ephesus. Hmm, Interesting. So the reason that there's some dispute about this is it actually just to the saints in, in Ephesus, or is it just to a, a group of churches? Like, who is Paul actually writing to, is, is the question we're asking right now. Uh, there's some dispute among scholars about this. And, and the reason, or a couple of the reasons there is some dispute, is that unlike most of Paul's letters, remember he wrote 13, those aren't, there aren't any personal greetings to members of the church. In Romans itself, Paul ends, ends with 16 verses of personal greetings. So this is quite different. This is curious because Paul spent many years with the church in Ephesus and knew their members closely. You can read about this in Acts chapter 19. So this, this is curious. And also there is no mention of spe- like a specific issue of false teaching or a pastoral issue that is being addressed, which is also often the case in the letters that are written to a specific community. This has led to the likely conclusion that this letter is meant to be a circular letter. That means it's, it's to be shared by a group of churches. And that could be shared with the church in Laodicea or on and on it could go. And so the, the hearers probably weren't only in Ephesus. They were in the other churches around. But since we have it here that this this letter is being read in in Ephesus and probably in other churches as well, but let's, let's imagine that the Ephesians are hearing this letter from Paul. What are the hearers in Ephesus like? What is their city like? What's going on there? Ephesus is um, a really important and cosmopolitan city at this time. Think of like New York City or London or Tottenham on the west coast of Asia. And so it's really important, lots happening, cultures happening there, all kinds of cosmopolitan goings on happening there. It boasted the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And this is of course a temple to the Greek go- a Greek goddess, who is actually Zeus's granddaughter. There was a grandiose theater that could seat upwards of 20,000 people. Uh, the temple of Julius Caesar and the goddess, uh, there was a temple there to Julius Caesar and the goddess Roma this was a city fascinated with magic and the occult it was made up of wealthy folks and s- slaves and those who could not claim much as much wealth either and there, the culture of the city was self-indulgent pagan and wicked and its citizens for the most part lived accordingly so in, in Paul's missionary journey there we read that Many people, that, that while he was there for those two years, he, he was able to persuade many people about the kingdom of God. And of course, the person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus and, and God's plan for the whole world. And in that process, many of those pagan, godless people renounced their old ways and began to follow the way of Jesus. So imagine for a sec, people who the week before maybe were visiting the temple prostitutes, now sharing a meal with others around the table, you know, taking communion with people who maybe had just, you know, the week before that been indulging in like occultic practices. They're now gathered around this new purpose of God's plan to unite heaven and earth and the gospel of Jesus and grace and peace and all these things becoming the center point of what they're doing. The theme of God's disruptive grace continues as we see Paul addressing this crew as saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Beautiful, amazing. And so the storyline here that we can take from, from this very beginning, this, this second letter of this, second line of this letter, is that when godless, immoral people encounter grace, they become saints. God doesn't give up on people. He doesn't think, okay, man, they're, they're at the temple visiting the prostitutes. There's no hope for them, right? They're indulging in occultic practices. It's actually the opposite. Like, those are the people that God's actually pursuing. Look out if you're doing those things. God's grace is going to disrupt your life. So when godless immoral people encounter grace, they become saints. And and along with that, the trappings and the bondage of sin and transgression and the lives of followers of Jesus is disrupted and removed as we learn to live faithfully in Christ. That's the second line. Let's let's move on. What so Paul, we know who Paul is, we know who's hearing this letter. Um, and 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 then what is he actually going to be talking about in this letter? And this brings us to that third line. So let's read this together grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or King Jesus. It's interesting. Paul says, Grace and peace to you. And so in doing so, Paul is saying, I'm going to, what, what I'm going to elaborate upon in this letter is going to be a source of grace and peace to you who hear it. So great. But what is grace and what is peace? What is, what is Paul going to be talking about? It's a word, you know, grace is a word. If you've grown up in church, you hear, you hear it a lot. And maybe sometimes we take it for granted. We don't really understand it. Maybe we have a shallow view of what it looks like. And so we're gonna be talking about this in great detail, but just again, in today's overview, what is grace? Here are three definitions from three different people. Dallas Willard, grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Scott McKnight, grace is the absolute and unrelenting goodness of God towards humans. Gordon Fee sums up his huge work on grace just with these three words, God's empowering presence. Paul talks about this in detail, in this letter to the Ephesians that we're studying. So let's read what he says in in chapter 2 of this letter, verses 4 to 7. I'll let you guys turn there. Let's read God's word. But God, always a good start, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Here, listen up to this part. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated with us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in King Jesus. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to lie alive together with Christ. And raised us up with him and seated with us, seated him with us in the heavenly places. By grace, you have been saved. I'm pretty sure dead people cannot raise themselves back to life. A dead, people, a dead person has a hard time doing anything. And we, in our own strength, continually try to find life in our own way. We're searching for it in in all kinds of shallow and misguided ways and end up just death. So what does God do? God acts on our behalf by raising us back to life in Christ. That's what grace is. God's empowering presence. We could not raise ourselves back to life in our death. God doing that, raising us from death to life is an absolute and unrelenting sign of the goodness of God towards us. And it's God acting in our life to do what we could not do in our, on our own. So when we join ourselves by faith into what Jesus has accomplished, what is true of him becomes true of us. So in that way, as Jesus was raised from the grave, he brings us along with him. Talk about disrupting something. God, God's grace disrupts our death with life. It's like we saw in the story of Paul. Like God, God disrupts him on the way to go and persecute and probably kill more Christians. God brings the very source of life into the conversation, brings him into the forefront and view of Paul, and disrupts his life forever. God disrupts our death with eternal life. God dealing is dealing with us infinitely better than we would we ever have deserved. So that's a real. A, a tidbit and a moose bouche of what grace is. But what, what about peace? Paul's te- Paul tells us more about this reality of peace here in chapter 2. He goes on in verses 14 and 17. So let's read this together. He's talking about Jesus here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments as exp- expressed in ordinances, That he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. This peace that Paul is talking about is both a vertical peace, he talks about Jesus establishing or reestablishing peace with God, what he's done but not only it doesn't stop there right he also talks about establishing a new one new man establishing peace between us on a horizontal level and the shorthand for this could be everything god's done to us and for us he now wants to do through us we've been reconciled to god on the vertical he's broken down the walls and created one new man horizontal god is bringing peace. God is waging peace. God is up, God is up to something bigger than we often realize. So what's the bigger story here? What is God's master plan? What is all this for? We see, you know, Jesus came for a purpose and a reason it is accomplishing something. And Paul is going to unpack this whole reality of grace and peace to us in and through God, the father and Jesus, what is, what is this master plan what is God up to? This is cha- chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians. The mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Drum roll, please. What is this plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. This is the point. This is the story. This is the story of heaven and earth being reunited But what we see here is that Jesus is the center point of this union. It all is summed up in Christ. It all finds its purpose in Christ. You and me, creation itself, all is finding its purpose in Christ. And what sin does, and in our death, what we agree with and take part in, is this whole fractured humanity and broken reality of of people who are not living into the, the purpose and plan that God has created for Human beings, and so we become divided, and we become um, hostile towards one another. We become selfish and, and individualistic, and we kind of stick with people who agree with us and want nothing to do with people who are different than us. And what we see at the cross is that Jesus is, you know, he's he's uniting heaven and earth, the God man, God himself, and man man are united in Jesus in the incarnation. But this big story. Has has more to it than just our personal salvation, where we our sins have been forgiven on the cross, that God's made peace peace with us, and God, but there's also peace between us and one another, and that's fueled by this grace, this disruptive grace that God has dealt with us infinitely better than we would have ever deserved, in doing doing so, you know, Paul, he, when he when Jesus is, um, appointing and and kind of sending Paul out, he's talking about eyes being opened and coming out of the darkness and into the light, and us being able to realize the big picture of what it means to be human and be alive in God's kingdom. But this is it, the story of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit seeing their dream of a family coming into reality, of heaven and earth being reunited, but God and man also being reunited, that there's this purpose of union that we're going to be looking at. The Father and Son, what they do, they pull us into that story as they continually ex- express their absolute and unrelenting goodness towards us to make peace where there was once war, to, to bring life where there was death, right? To, to bring those who are far off near. Grace and peace make the bigger story of scripture a possibility. So I could go on and on. So, But in summary, we, we've got 18 weeks. I need to, I need to hold myself back, restrain myself. In summary... I said it in the beginning, this this book is chalked full of rich theology, so much to unpack, and mind-bending good news that sometimes it's it's like this is too good to be true. But I, I'm going to just summarize this this book in two chunks, and then kind of end with with a few goals as we continue on in this story together. So we figured out who wrote it. We figured out it, it's original here as we've kind of unpacked a little bit of what grace and peace is. This is what Paul is going to be com- communicating through the next, you know, verses that we read together. So it's, I want us to think through the book in two chunks. So the first three chapters, chapters one to three, we're going to be reading along as Paul unpacks the truth of the human condition and how Jesus has made a way through his life, death, and resurrection for a new humanity to emerge. Okay, how things are being summed up in Christ. The broken, fractured humanity has met, has seen Jesus, the, the, the level ground of the cross of Christ, and, and then the next steps into this new humanity of where it's marked by a few beautiful things. So in those chapters, guys, Paul is going to unload some of the richest and purest theology out there. Insane. Buckle up for those three chapters. He's going to go right after our individualistic, selfish, divisive, looking out for number one glory and how that ultimately continually leads us to death and what God has done to bring us back to life and to renew our purpose to live in his kingdom. So in summary, that first three chapters is the gospel story being told. And we're going to look at that under two headings, new life and new family. And there's this awesome phrase at the beginning of chapter four, therefore. So it's like in light of everything we've just unpacked, As you guys are, as we're wrestling through our beliefs, as we're coming to terms with our own broken and humanity and frailty and our need for a savior, our recognition that we were dead and we need someone to bring us back to life and the good news that Jesus did that. So then therefore, in light of that incredibly good news, this is what we're going to be talking about. Chapters four through six, we're going to be learning how this new humanity lives in light of what we believe. This new humanity will be bound together in Christ with these three lenses interpreting how we exist as a new humanity. So three things that we're going to be unpacking there. The first thing is unity. So on the horizontal level, we contend. So right, God has made peace with us on this vertical level. But on on the horizontal level, we contend to maintain the bond of peace that Jesus created. The enemy is continually looking to undermine what God has done. He wants to undermine that unity, create division again, like going back to the old way that leads to death where it's fractured and we, we spend time with only the people that think exactly like we do and look like we do and, and that's not how the gospel works. There's a recognition and a response to the level ground that the cross of Jesus creates. We were all dead and now he's made us alive. You, weren't, you can't be more dead than someone else. Dead is dead and alive is alive. So unity, that's the first thing we're going to be thinking through and, and looking through that lens as we unpack the chapters 4 through 6. The second one is this whole idea of holiness. How many of you are like, oh gosh, really Tom, holiness? It's almost seen as like a curse word in our day and time. But the truth is, is that God is calling us to live in a way that is set apart from the rest of the world. No, I don't think you can deny that. We say we follow Jesus, we're following the way of Jesus for the renewal of our town, that's gonna to look different than the culture and the world around us. So what that means, in super, you know, condensed terms, is we're gonna live counterculture in sex, money, and power. And it's going to be causing us to look at how we're doing everything. How we're, how and through that through those lenses of unity and of holiness, and finally of love, this this third point, and this is the core ethic. Of the the new humanity Jesus is building, and this is action this is love actually um, encompassing an action, not just a theoretical love, but an, a love that is a verb. Shout out DC Talk. This action of pursuing the well being of others, regardless of their response, or even their their um. What they've done to deserve it, their deservedness. Like that's the whole story of grace. We we don't deserve God's goodness to us, He just lavishes it on us so that we can do that to others. So those three lenses, unity, holiness, and love, are the make up the, the, the second three chapters of the second half of Paul's letter. So in summary, how the what we're gonna be looking at in those chapters is how the gospel story shapes our story as the new humanity. And the two headings we'll be looking at, there are new way, there's a new way of living, and there's a new way to do relationships. It's a new way, new relationships. That's like marriage and singleness and parenting and all kinds of good stuff. And then we're gonna spend a while in that chunk. Everyone take a deep breath. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm okay with that. Like there's gonna be so much time to unpack this stuff, but I want you guys just to kind of get some some framework for what we're gonna be doing and looking at in this, this beautiful letter. So what are some goals though? What are the goals behind even doing, why are we doing this? What, what are the goals we want to have here? The first thing for, for us, a goal for this All Things New series is to establish a rooted belief system. It's incredibly important for us as followers of Jesus to, to become deeply rooted in the gospel story that we understand the story of Scripture, that we understand God's purposes and plans for this place, for this, for you, for the people around you. And what we do is we become deeply rooted in this belief system. As, As belief starts to kind of surface, there's going to be a time and space for us to realize and repent of unbelief in our own lives or for belief in a different story, in my story rather than God's story, or the story of culture or individual, like fill in the blank story. And so reading the gospel story, becoming rooted in the, in the gospel story is going to lead to us realizing or seed it actually tangibly expressed in the world around us. Our beliefs are um, have more bearing on our lives than we realize. And so this quote from Dallas Willard is going to serve as a reference point and hopefully like, kind of like a springboard um, for us as we work for that rooted belief system as we look through the story of, of of Ephesians, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it were true. I'm going to read that one more time. We don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it were true. That's Dallas Willard from the Renovation of the Heart. That's That's it, summed up. So the first three chapters, we're we're, we're working through and establishing what we actually believe. And so if that's true, we're going to act as if that's true. If God's grace and peace has been established through Jesus and, and given to us lavishly, then that's got to affect the way that we live. And this leads us to the second goal is to faithfully practice the new way as the new humanity. This means letting go of our individualism by embracing and championing one another by championing each other all along the way, encouraging, 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 looking to others more than ourselves. And the third goal is to grow together as one body in Christ. We need need a bigger story to be a part of. And so for for human beings to be healthy and to live the way that God's created us to live, created us to live, we need to live for something bigger than ourselves. For my own immediate pleasure. To fulfill my immediate needs or my perception of what I even need. You and I were created to live for something much bigger than ourselves. So as we as we begin to do that, as we are rooted in this belief of, of the story of God and his grace and peace extended to us in Jesus, as we begin to actually follow through and practice living life in line with this new humanity and ethics that are laid out there of you know living for unity and living in a way that's holy and set apart from the world and that is rooted and expressed in love then then there's going to be unity that happens there that we're all contending for the same thing there's not this is my goal and this is my goal and they're not you know they're not working together so let's just we're done it's like how do we live as God's new humanity here on this earth, as a colony of heaven. So as we do that, that, there's going to be this inevitable loving one another with a genuine love that is not dependent on the reaction of others. And in that process, there's going to be questions asked, and hopefully there's there's going to be testimony to, to who Jesus is, that he really is who he says he is by the way that we love one another. So guys, I'm excited. I'm hopeful. I'm trusting. And I know, and I know that you know, as you read the Bible, this is the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Father. They want unity. They're they're contending for this more than we even realize. They want us to have beliefs that line up with God's story. They want us to live lives that that are reflective of this new humanity. And they want us to be one. And so our prayer this year, our vision for this year is make us one. And so we're trusting that as we learn together through this book, this letter that God's going to do beautiful things. He's going to do restorative things. He's going to make all things new as he does. So I'm just going to pray a short prayer and that'll be it for this teaching. I love you guys. I'm excited for what God wants to do, but let's go after it. I want to encourage you to to dive in, to be willing and open, to have your beliefs inspected and 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 dug around in. I want to challenge you to to be open to living differently than you have been. And I want us to contend for unity together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, make us one in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen.